You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan, and I've got my best friends with me. We got former Aquanetta's drummer, current solo artist, and bird enthusiast, Stephanie Seymour. That's me. <laughs> and DJ and journalist, Rob Levy. Hello. Yeah. Sadly, Anthony is not with us this week. He's um, he's busy with a work commitment, so we will be flying the ship without him, sadly. Having spent some time last week in the year of 1972, this week we're going to do a short hop forward in our musical time machine and check out some albums that are celebrating their 45th anniversary, released in 1977. We're going to so, wallow in 77. Oh, it's going to be so great. <laughs> I mean, you just say 1977 and I can basically hear the year. And now, you know, those sounds are so ingrained in my brain. Yep. Ingrained in the membrane. What? <laughs> <laughs> but first, uh, we've got some listener feedback that we want to get to. Um, and this is like a couple of weeks worth. I, we got a lot of feedback on our Gina Shock episode. Wait, wait, what? We, what? we recorded an episode with Gina Shock? Yes, we did. What? I haven't. Have we mentioned that before? I. We should do it again. Just we because. Should. Yeah. Yeah. Gina Everybody, Shock was on our podcast. Right. I it's know. Insane. So yeah, go listen to the episode because it's already by far our. Uh, most listened to episode. So yeah, just give it a little bit more love. So we got a lot of great feedback on that one. And then we got a couple of things from um, our last show, which was about Woodstock 99. Um, author Nick Griffiths, who we had on as a guest um, earlier, talking about the books that he had written on Keith Moon and REM and all these other bands, said that he watched both documentaries, Riveting and Terrifying. You book those Meathead bands sell those tickets to jocks, then treat them that shockingly. There is no excuse for that insanity. So true. Thanks, Nick, for chiming in on that one. And Stephanie, you have a good one, too. Yes, my friend Chris actually wrote um, about that episode. He wrote that he watched the episodes, you know, the three-parter in the documentary, so he could listen to the podcast about it. I thought that was awesome. Thank that you, Chris. Fantastic. We love you, Flinny. He gets a prize, but he we does. don't have any. But we don't have any. <laughs> well, the, so he, just, he gets a new episode. Love. He gets our enduring love for the week. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. All right. So, Rob, you took a little trip this past week. And yeah. have a couple of great things to report on. Yeah. So everything's kind of crawling back into normal, and it's very surreal and weird. But about three years ago, almost three years ago, uh, Janet and I got tickets uh, for the Unity Tour, which is uh, DJ Paul Oakenfold, uh, New Order, and the Pet Shop Boys. But it's a, it's a greatest hits tour for both bands. So um, the Pet Shop Boys got, I believe, Tom Ford, who directed the uh, recent uh, revival of Cabaret in London and New York, to be wow. the, the stage, to do all the stage stuff. 
and New Order is just still New Order, but they uh, they're they're switching off who headlines for each show, right? Oh, so, idea. yeah, the Pet Shop Boys played first. The visuals behind them, go to YouTube, you can see them. The visuals behind them are, are and the lighting is pretty amazing. But it's about an hour, 28, hour, 30 minute set of greatest hits, pretty much all straight through with no break, right? And, you know, I've seen them a couple times. And this time it had much more energy, I think, because every record is a hit that they're yeah. doing. Um, and they're playing, you know, they're, they're, rely- they're pulling deep into the catalog of hits. It was relentless and it was just really euphoric. And then they closed with being boring, which was really um, kind of poignant and and um, moving. And it was they were great. Now I'd seen New Order before. Um, first time I saw them was at Giant Stadium years ago, mm-hmm. which I'm, I'm sure you can imagine. Steph was not great for sound. No. Um, and then I saw them in Chicago a couple of years ago to theater. So I, they've never been known as being a great live band, but they were much much better. This time, uh, they've added a visual component to them to their backing show, which is great. The thing that's interesting is they're playing Joy Division song, which they did in the last tour, but they're not. Do, they're doing it more and more. So they're they're closing with Love Will Tear Us Apart, and then they're alternating. I love it when bands do this. They're alternating their set list every night. Oh, right? Yeah, yeah. I so like the that Pet Shop too. Boys, the Pet Shop Boys is pretty much a set thing every night, which it probably has to be because of the nature of the music. But they have little songs that they're slipping in, like when they were in LA, they did California Dreamin'. Um, but they did ceremony, but they're slipping in. So they closed with level terrace part. We got decades, uh, which was interesting. And it's that band, you know, Ian Curtis has been gone for 40 to 45 years now. It's crazy. You can still feel, you can still feel the trauma of that event in their, in their music when they play the songs. Um, it's really, really interesting. And they put a big giant picture of Ian Curtis up on this huge, massive screen. And it's really kind of, it really gets you. If you get a chance, what I really love about this tour is uh, Gillian Gilbert, who is their keyboardist on Twitter, on her Twitter feed for every date on the show is rating the backstage food and snacks <laughs> and commenting on them. That's so great. Uh, so as a touring that's artist, that's what's important. Yeah, as that's a, a whole as, new take on the food blog. As a touring artist, that. as a touring artist, Steph, I thought you'd like that. I do. Um, so wow. it was a really it was a really great show. It was energetic. Um, I'd not been to Minneapolis before. Uh, we caught a break on the weather, which was amazing. Um, you know, it's the you know a lot of the stuff. It is a great city for bookstores and record stores. Uh, I went to Electric Fetus, uh, which is their their notorious record store there, and bought a couple things. It was reasonably priced. Um, the last day, we did Paisley Park on on that Monday that we left. And we got we got the first tour in the morning, and it's tiered. There's three different tours you could do. So we did the middle one, uh, which is about two hours. And uh, our our tour guide was amazing. All of the tour guys uh, tour guides are like, you know, you can tell they're really into Prince, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this woman may have know, been the one person I know that knows as much about Prince as Alan. Um, <laughs> well, I have a have a vocational calling then apparently um i need to move to minneapolis you start in and you know you can't take any pictures you can't touch anything which is fine they have a designated photo areas but you start at like the center and they're like okay this is like prince had a little mini recording studio made and it was themed for each album is the theme for the decor and then you can walk in and see his office where he had his desk and stuff and it's like 
it's just weird thinking that, you know, yeah, it was very stylized around Prince, but you just don't think of Prince having an office. I know you totally I, don't. But when you see the office, it is abundantly clear at that point that he knew every single friggin' thing that was going on in that building, mm. right? All the time, right? Um, mega, mega hands-on. More hands-on than anyone would have thought. So you get to see his, his office, which is cool. The upstairs, which is the bedroom and stuff you don't see. Nobody, nobody's gone into his bedroom since he passed except his sister. Um, and then he has a, a kitchen, like a welcome kitchen on the first floor, which if he got bored or wanted to watch a television or a game, um, he did. He had it set up like a 50s diner. And then um, Coca-Cola made him a Purple Rain-themed soda uh, candy vending machine. So it's all decked out like Purple Rain and pictures of the film Purple Rain, and it's just got snacks in it. You, yeah. Um, and he has a huge TV set up in there, and that's kind of his relaxation room for, for that level floor. And then you start going into the studios. And he literally had different studios that do different things. He had one that had your regular studio thing. He had one that had, like, concrete because he wanted to get the reverb and, the, and a certain amount of feedback sounding a particular way. And um, so you go to the various rooms he recorded in. They walk you through that. You see his dance studio that had uh, two basketball nets that like basically went up and down because he would like to play basketball. He had a mural commission called Friends and Family. And so part of it is the beginning of it is all the people that influenced him, like Santana and Funkadelic and Jimi Hendrix and stuff, right? And the mural moves to like people in his band, right? And then it slowly moves into people he produced. So you see, like, you know, the family, and you see the time, and you see Wendy and Lisa, and you, and so it's this huge, massive mural, and it's beautiful. <laughs> then between recording studio two and recording studio three, he has his his uh, galaxy room, which is basically a room that is bl- uh, purple lit, right? That has a replica of the universe painted onto the walls with a couch. So whenever Prince felt like he was mentally exhausted or tired or just needed to chill. He would just go in that room and watch all the stars and stuff. And you can actually stand in it and it's ultra, ultra blue light or purple light. And it's really cool. One of the studios has his uh, like two or three of the pianos that were made especially for him. And there's one of them that's got a hat on top that was literally, he set that there and it hasn't been moved since he set it there. This is my favorite Prince story though, from the whole trip. So Prince had, Basically, Steph, you know what um, those little metal boxes that those gear boxes that bands take on the road with mm-hmm. them, they put their stuff in, always has their name on it, right? Mm-hmm. So Prince had one. It's got basically, you can see it standing. It's got a little stool in it and it's got air holes on each side, right? Yeah. He would sit down in it and they would bring him from place to place in the, at the venue in, he'd be inside this box. He learned this trick from Houdini. And he'd bring it. And then that way, when they had the shows where he was in the center, he didn't have to walk through the audience. Mm-hmm. Oh. For that part of the tour, they, they have a video screen behind it. So you see video clips of him live there. And it's it's remarkable. And they really go into detail about the whole issue with the name change that he did, to the, changing his name to a symbol, why it happened. They kind of explain that because a lot of people don't know the history of that which is interesting. And it's just a great tour. If you get to Minneapolis, do the Prince tour. Man, it's it's amazing. I felt guilty doing it because I knew how much Alan would love it. Um, I'll get there one day. Um, I'll be there. It's 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 incredible. Uh, we, 
you know, we were there probably about four hours because the tour is two hours and they give you some time to do some other stuff. The tour guides will ask questions. They'll, um, they'll come up like if you're looking at something like, oh, what do you like about this? What do you not like about this? Or they'll, they'll say, what's your favorite record? Oh, well, you know, this record was recorded here, blah, blah, blah. Right. So that is, that is the longest short of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that's amazing. I can't wait to get there and see it for myself. But. And the, yeah, I can't say enough about the tour guide. Yeah. It was great. Um, that's awesome. So if you get to Minneapolis, go. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I wouldn't go to Minneapolis for any other reason. So, <laughs> I mean, not that there's anything wrong with Minneapolis, but that would be the reason that I would go. Okay. All right. So, uh, thanks, Rob, for that mm -hmm. verbal tour of Paisley Park. We are going to take a quick break. We will be back in 30 seconds, and then we're going to jump into our main topic of 1977. So, stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, hey, we're Monkeying Around, a podcast about the monkeys. Almost 12 years old. Davy Jones was it for me. <laughs> I was having problems dancing and tambourining. I got overzealous <laughs> and overly excited. Like we've had our own little version of Monkey Mania 50 years later, which is just crazy. Be sure to like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and monkeyingaround.com. All right, so we're back. Thanks so much for sticking around. We are talking about the year 1977. And, okay, so last week in our last show, we talked about 72 and talked about it being sort of a weird year where you had a lot of new stuff happening, but you had a lot of holdover from the 60s and the 50s of these artists that are still active. 77 is much more a transitional year than 72 was because you literally have like the old guard dying off and the new guard stepping in to take their place. So I want to get us sort of started off with some of the events that happened in 1977. And we start out with uh, Valentine's Day, February 14th, 1977. The B-52s play their very first show. And if that doesn't tell you what's coming down the pike as far as like the, a real change in the musical landscape, the B-52s started out by playing a, they just played a Valentine's Day party at a friend's house. They had gotten together and they jammed a little bit and then they just did this show in somebody's living room and that's where they began. In April, Studio 54 opens. And you think, how did that not happen before 1977? But Studio 54 yeah. is in 77. That's crazy. May 31st, Beatlemania opens on Broadway at the Winter Garden Theater. In uh, June 12th, final performance of The Supremes. The biggie, though, the thing that really defines 1977. June 26th, Elvis receives a plaque honoring RCA's two billionth record pressing. And that night played what would turn out to be his final concert. August 16th, Elvis is found dead at Graceland. And Elvis's funeral was two days later also at Graceland. But the other thing, August 16th, the same day that Elvis is found dead, Bing Crosby performs what turns out to be his final performance. And he dies a month later. Uh, it's notable that Elvis dies the same, almost the same time that Elvis Costello puts out his first record. So a total change of guard there. It is. August 26th, Voyager 2 is launched and it carries a representative recording of Life on Earth, which includes 
uh, Bach's Brandenburg Concerto, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, a Chinese composition, and Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. October 20, a plane crash that killed four members of Leonard Skinner band and crew. And then on November 30th, you have Bing Crosby's final television appearance that was filmed just before he passed away. Bing Crosby's Merry Old Christmas, which of course had the guest star David Bowie. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. But this was a this is such a crazy year. There's so much weird stuff going on. Um, you've got the last record of Elvis, you've got, you know, Bing Crosby leaving, you've got all this holdover stuff that really kind of comes to an end, but then you have all this new stuff. And Stephanie, yeah, one of the big things that came, I mean, this is a big year for punk. It is huge. And I mean, as I was sort of delving into 77, I really couldn't believe all the amazing debuts. And I, I have just like, I'm going to just list, I'm sure maybe <laughs> some, you know, one of you might go into a little more detail of some of these albums, but these are debuts. Mm. Actually, Sex Pistols, it was their only album, but Sex Pistols yeah. album, never mind the books. <laughs> the Clash, with, I mean, yeah. the amazing white riots on there, Police and Thieves, London's yep. Burning. I mean, mm. insane. Um, television, Marky yep. Moon debut. Elvis, you, as you mentioned, My Aim is True. Um, the Damned. Oh, yeah. uh, in the City by The Jam. <gasps> Suicide's oh. debut. Yeah. Iggy Pop's debut. Oh, yep. The idiot. Talking Heads debut. Talking Heads 77. The Talking Heads, man. That is a, yep. that's a seismic event. Right it is. Well, uh, all, this, yeah, all three of those. The, yeah. you, know, or, you know, between the Damned, yeah. the Sex Pistols, the Clash, and, and the, Talking the Heads. And the Stranglers, and also Richard Hell. Like, these are all debut albums. And then you have, so you have all these, you know, real new raw punk albums. And then you have, you're also in the same time of, Disco and rock, where where Jackson yeah. Brown is huge, running on empty, you know. Oh yeah. E.G. Saturday Night Fever, Clapton, Slowhand, ELO, Meatloaf, Sticks, all Donna Summer, like all these people are out at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's just a it's a crazy mishmash yeah. of a year, and that brings me to my number one pick <laughs> of this year, which I think is an album that it never goes out of style, and that is Rumors by Fleetwood yeah. Mac. Yeah. It, I, I mean, it's it's pretty obvious choice, but I, I can't stress enough how, you know, notable this album is. And I mean, of course, everyone knows pretty much every song from it. And this is also interesting that it's their 11th album. Mm -hmm. So this is, mm -hmm. I guess, I think it's only their third, maybe with, with Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie. I'm not sure. Uh, second. Second? second. Okay. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, the main writers for this album were, were Buckingham, McVie, and Nicks. That they, the, yeah. I think The Chain was the only song that they all co-wrote. Mm -hmm. but, but just think about, okay, I just wanted to note that on this record, there were, they only had four singles, which were Go Your Own Way, Dreams, Don't Stop, Thinking About Tomorrow, and You Make Love and Fun. But I'm going to tell, tell you every title of the rest of could <laughs> Because it seems like these are all singles, mm -hmm. and you're going to be they like, are. oh, yeah. But right. because radio played them all. So and still secondhand, do. they still do. Secondhand, secondhand news, news is always on classic radio. Never going back again. Yep. Songbird. That yep. wasn't a single. That no, was it not wasn't a single. single. And that was the closing song for every concert they played for decades. Yeah. Uh, the Chain. That wasn't yeah. a single. Yeah. I don't want to know. Oh, Daddy wasn't a single. Yeah. Gold Dust Woman. Not a, not single. a single. So I... 
Yeah. It's a, it's just mind-blowing. This it album is, is mind-blowing. It is. And it not, is. I mean, not to mention all the personal, you know, relationships and breakups and things that were going on that they kind of, you know, they had to put aside and go into studio and made, they made this incredible album. Yeah. Yeah, so. it's amazing. It is probably as close to a perfect album as you can get. It's, mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. I mean, and that's why it never goes out of style. Yep. Because it's relatable and because it is note perfect. And her name is Stephanie Lynn, and so is mine. Hey. <laughs> is your middle name Lynn? It is. Oh, I'm going to call you Stevie from now on. <gasps> That's what my old boyfriend called me. <laughs> oh, then maybe I shouldn't do that. <laughs> Was that TMI for this podcast? Oh, or, I, don't I don't think so. Uh, okay. Don't That's think. up to you. If it you is, call me you Stevie. tell me to cut it. You can call me Stevie. <laughs> okay. And I'll All pass right. it to somebody else. So piggybacking off your punk yes it's interesting that that year it's a year when a lot of people did two two albums i know alan will get to this later indeed you're right uh the stranglers Mm. put out two records yeah the ramones put out both leave home and rocket to russia yeah which if they just put out those two records we're done right yeah um you also get the very first ep from the buzzcocks and the first ep from xtc and um one of my favorite records uh wire pink flag which at the time that nobody knew it was kind of the blueprint for post-punk. Um, just an amazing record. And then I'm one of the, you know, the, the other thing too, is I know we're talking about like everything's going on with, with it. It's, it's obscene just how much stuff's going on in 1977, but you have a throbbing gristle record called the second annual report that is laying the foundation for industrial music in the nineties, mm. that whole cacophony of nine inch nails nine and front nails, line assembly yeah. and all that you're, you're getting that too right uh you've got a brian eno record right mm-hmm. um going back to talking head 77 i can't even begin to tell you just how great that record still is yeah every one of those records i think of yep. all the ones that you talked about though steph um the debut record from the clash and damn 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 by the damn are probably <laughs> the two that are the most um I actually think the jam though too. I I love in the city, but I'd heard I you know I'd heard the jam before I heard those two other records. Mm, Okay. Um, And just in terms of just what they did in making an impact, I mean the Pistols obviously made one, but that Clash record really ruffled. I mean the songs were really solid on that Clash record. You know, in in austerity Britain, that record did not sit well in in upper class society, right? Right. So um, yeah, I think that. That's a great. Uh, probably none of these really did, but uh, you know the ones that were for. Oh, you also mentioned the people that with two albums. I mean, I- Iggy had two albums too. He yeah. it was it was did the idiot and Less for Life. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Craftwork Transworld Express, which also yeah. named tracks Bowie and um, Iggy. It's still amazing. I saw Craftwork earlier this year, and they played songs from that, and they don't sound like they're from 1977 now. <laughs> which a lot of these great records don't sound like they're this old. Um, like rumors just does not sound like it's from no. 1977 at all. Trans Europe Express is the same way. It's amazing. Uh, Glenn Campbell did uh, uh, a record as well. Southern Nights. You get Here We Go Again by Dolly Parton. That's amazing mm-hmm. as well. Um, and I just want to underscore the absolute importance of Donna Summer's I Feel Love because it just completely changed what people thought of i mean you had disco happening you had rose royce and you had you know um disco inferno going on right 
don't the idea of like a seven or ten minute single in 1977 was a thing, right? But I feel love just completely changed everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it just literally was a game changer uh, on how people listen to R and B music and how people listen to dance music. So. Well, yeah, it was the first hit record. I mean, it wasn't the first record that was constructed solely of synthetic sound, but it was the first hit yeah. that was solely synthesizer. Yeah. And that's that's enormous. So that album is really interesting. Um, it comes from her fifth album. Mm-hmm. I think it was fifth. Um, I remember yesterday. And it's a really, really interestingly constructed album where she basically does this tour through musical styles of different decades. It starts with sort of a 40s pastiche with the title song and then does a, a 50s sort of girl group kind of song and then a 60s and then a couple of 70s in a, a, tr- a pure disco song and a love ballad that's sort of timeless. But then the last track, so it starts in the 40s and goes up through the present and then the final track propels you into the future. You know, it's a fascinating record. Um, and you know, a lot of the songs are really, really catchy and really uh, good, but I don't think that it would have had the impact had it not had I Feel Love. Yeah. And uh, Bowie told this story once about how um, they were, re- I guess they were recording Heroes at the time. And Eno comes into the studio just all excited and just his feathers are all ruffled. And he's like, I have just heard the sound of the future. <laughs> and then played the song for Bowie, and Bowie was like, "Holy cow, that's amazing!" Speaking of Bowie, you should uh, Bowie it up. All right, let's Bowie it up. So, seventy-seven is an insane year for Bowie. Um, it starts out with um, so in seventy-seven, it was kind of a very prolific year for Bowie. Uh, the release of "Low," his eleventh studio album which was um, in January, like the second week of January, was followed by co-writing, recording, and producing two Iggy Pop albums. He did a six-week tour as the piano player in Iggy's band. He had an NME nomination and a win for Best Rock Vocalist, an appearance on Bing Crosby's Merry Old Christmas, which, of course, is, is you that- know where the, the great Christmas classic Little Drummer Boy slash Peace on Earth comes from. And then wrote, record, and and produced his next album, Heroes. That's all in one year. Crazy! It's like mind blowing, right? Yeah, he was on fire. Well, he was on cocaine, which is fire. Which is some kind of fire, <laughs> right? Um, but these these first two albums, well, these two albums of his, Low and Heroes, are sort of considered to be two of the three albums in what's called his Berlin trilogy. Even though the third one has nothing at all really to do with Berlin, which is these two great. albums were both recorded, and they're so fascinating because they're influenced by the kraut rock scene you know noi and Kraftwerk and all these great things and he's doing these ambient instrumentals like side two of low is nothing but instrumental pieces that aren't song structure at all they're just these weird amorphous sort of soundscape things and you know had you been a bowie fan up to that point and listened to ziggy and Aladdin Sane and Diamond Dogs, you would never have expected that record. Yeah, and that's such a great point. Yeah, that's amazing. 
And then he, you know, writes, produces, records two Iggy Pop albums, which are both phenomenal. The Idiot and Lust for Life. I, yeah, it's incredible. And then does a tour with Iggy. And then, I mean, it's just an incredible Bowie year. So Bowie 77, man. That's I'm also a, impressed that it was the Bing Bing Crosby uh, performance. That, that, that was such a great... I love watching that video. Yeah. It's so yeah. beautiful. It's so touching, I think. Yeah. yeah, there's a great story behind that in that um, Bowie agreed to come on. And mainly he didn't really know anything about Bing Crosby. He mainly did it because his mother was um, sort of antagonizing Bowie and his wife at that time. And he wanted he was doing anything he could to try and normalize the relationship with his mother. So he went on because his mother wow. loved Bing Crosby. Um, he hates little drummer boy that's like his least favorite christmas song and they said well this is what we're going to do and he's like oh can't we do something different and like in a matter of hours the, the 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 writers for the show came up with this whole new melody and lyric to add to little drummer boy for bowie to sing right like the counterpoint the da, yeah. Da, na, na. Yeah, yeah that's so beautiful oh it yeah it really is and so there you go a, wow. an eternal christmas classic fantastic i love <laughs> yeah. it and perhaps the most awkward contrast of styles ever filmed yeah. on television, you know. Yeah. Okay. Um, my, I'm going to go with <clears throat> number two, uh, The Stranger by Billy Joel. Yeah. And this is an album that, you know, it was like the 1978 soundtrack for my my whole camp. So because it, it came out in 77, but it, you know, it snowballed into 78. I mean, singles were being mm -hmm. released in 78. Um. So it just reminds me of my of my childhood so much at camp. But um, so this is his fifth album, but the one that really, really just, you know, catapulted him into major start stardom. I mean, it had just the way you are moving out, the stranger, only the good die young. She's she's always a woman. Always a woman yeah. You know, I mean, this is, this is practically a greatest hits album by it, itself. It really is. Scenes I mean, from an Italian restaurant. Well, that's another thing. So about about that, that was like, you know, we would sing that at camp like we would act it out i mean <laughs> all my camp <laughs> sisters will remember this <laughs> and, and it does seem like that should that was a single but you know it wasn't that was it's another kind of rumor situation where mm -hmm. yeah. you know um get it right the first time you know mm -hmm. and and actually that album closes with such a beautiful song called everybody has a dream mm -hmm. which is a very long kind of drawn out production um but it's I've always wanted to cover it because I think it's so beautiful and it's so uh, it's just a moving song. Um, but anyway, the, the, the album is, is just uh, it's one, it's really one of my favorite albums of all time. Yeah. And um, Liberty DeVito has like the best drum beat in the whole world on get it right. The first time. Liberty's a cool dude. Liberty is. I met him once. Oh, really? Yeah, because he plays with my he plays he used to play in a band maybe he still does with Ricky Bird from Jones Band Joan Jets Band so I know no mm. Ricky so I went to see them play and he it was like with Christine Ullman from Saturday Night Live like that they were all in a band together anyway so Liberty was there I was like I hello I can't stop because you're so amazing <laughs> <laughs> it's a great year for singles McCartney had a great year for for singles. Um, Marvin Gaye had a great year for singles with Got to Give It Up. Um, That's a great song. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's a lovely day by Bill Withers. What, 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 what really astounds me is how many of these records at the time were just like, 
Yeah, but now they're classics. Yeah, you're right. Which, which is when I look back at this, right? So I'm looking at the year. I do want to mention, too, since Anthony is not here, I would be remiss if I did not mention that Sparks released their seventh album, Introducing Sparks, in 1977. I just want to make sure Anthony gets some He's equal, covered. equal time here. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I'm going to kind of throw a curveball here, and but not really. It kind of fits with all this, ties it together. But Leonard Cohen's Death of a Ladies Man. Mm. Um, you know, when I lived in New York and, I, and it was like cold and miserable and yucky in winter out and I stayed inside, that's the record I'd listen to a lot um, if I wanted to be like a melancholic, sad bastard. But it's also like um, his his records, they played like books, right? And just in terms of how he created songs and things, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. just it's just amazing. Um, so I'm going with that. And then Tom Waits' Foreign Affairs kind of is the other bookend of that as well. Those are both kind of oddly wedged albums but not really albums because they're more like poetry set to songs kind of a mm-hmm. thing but um by contrast of everything else going on that year i'm gonna go with those cool wow all right well i am gonna do another left turn this was a surprisingly good year for prog and sort of prog related kind of things so um we're we're gonna start out in july July 7th, actually, which is the release of Yes's Going for the One, which is a phenomenal record. One of the worst album covers ever <laughs> and does not at all capture the, the the feel of that album or of that band, really. Um, it's very strange, but musically, it's just a phenomenal record. And it's basically five tracks and they're all just so incredibly well constructed. And I kind of wanted to start with that one because on the same day, Styx releases their seventh album. So it comes out on seven, seven, 77. They're so clever. (laughs) And it's called the grand illusion. Now I don't really necessarily think of it as Prague, but it definitely has Prague influence on it. And, you know, one of the greatest Styx records ever made. I mean, it is the one that really propelled them into superstardom. Um, they'd had very limited success up until that point, and the Grand Illusion is all about the transitory nature of fame and how you're sort of looking for that, like um, that fame and the fortune, and it always sort of like evades your grasp. And ironically, writing a whole album about that is what got them the fame and the fortune and all that stuff. So maybe they should have done it a little earlier. Yeah, But um, so Rush does Farewell to Kings, which is a huge transitional record for them. It's the first one that introduces uh, keyboards with Getty spending as much time on keyboard and keyboard passages within the composition of songs as it on his bass. Kansas, the big sort of prog American band, releases Point of No Return, which has the title song and Dust in the Wind, which was an enormous single for them that year. And Genesis released their second live album called Seconds Out, which is phenomenal. It's right after, it's a couple albums after Peter Gabriel had left the band. And of course, we haven't mentioned it yet. But Peter Gabriel's first solo yes. album comes out this year mm. as well. Yes. That is massive. Yeah. But um, this is the first live album without uh, Peter Gabriel. And 
since they've only done two albums, I think it was two since then, you know, they're still playing a great deal of Peter Gabriel material, but now with Phil Collins singing it and with mixed results, some of it is really good. And in fact, the big piece Supper's Ready, which is the big 25 minute uh, masterpiece of theirs. I actually like this live version more than the original recording with Peter Gabriel. I think that Phil sings it incredibly well. I think it's much more expressive. I think that a lot of the arrangement is done in a way that really amplifies the dynamics and the change of tempos and everything. And I think it's just astoundingly good. So that's my prog report for this cool. week. I like the prog report. That, yes, record. I'm, so I start doing that every week. This is this is how <laughs> I've got the prog report. That yes record. That's the first record by yes I ever heard. Okay. And it's been really it was really hard to like Yes Records after it because it's so incredibly good. The second song on the album is called Wondrous Stories, and it is basically a three and a half minute encapsulation of everything that is yes. So I would say if anybody wanted a, a short introduction to see if yes would be something for them, Wondrous Stories is, an, is a great place to start. It is a beautiful song, so well written. The imagery and the lyrics is just lush and amazing. And the song arrangement is just great. So that would be that would be a recommendation from me. I'm right. going to swing it on over to Reggae Land because I don't think you can, you, you just can't mention 77 without talking about Exodus by Bob Marley and the Whalers. Mm, this is yeah. just the album that, you know, really shot them into into fame oh my god i just i didn't mean to use the word shot because he was actually <laughs> there was an you know he was um you know there was an assassination attempt on him in 76 and he was shot yeah in the chest and he they, he basically fled to london and then made this album which was it just you know jamming waiting in vain one love people get ready like this is just an insanely influential album so i that and it was on Island where I worked, even though that was way before, that was before, but <laughs> before I worked there, but still. Um, I also want to talk about some, some ladies from that year. Um, Heart had Little Queen out mm -hmm. um, with, Bar of course, like Barracuda, Love Alive, um, Kick It Out. Such a great album. You know, there I, I always love the story about how Barracuda was written because they're, old record label had put mushroom had put some ad out that made it look like the sisters were were like lovers yep. and then it was like a tabloid kind of ad you know yep. to and um some douchebag radio promoter like asked her about, Ann about it in an interview and she didn't I, I guess she didn't know about it and she got so pissed off and then she told nancy about it and they were so mad that they co-wrote barracuda which was just like a big fuck you and it went to like mm -hmm. number 11 on the billboard so i thought that was i think it's such a great like you know mm -hmm. shove yeah. it story you know and it made a, a real hit for them yeah um, and there, there's more behind that story too because mm -hmm. when they when they saw the ad they were working on their second album magazine yeah they saw the ad they immediately stopped work and um were basically going to walk away from their record contract Mushroom sued them for breach of contract. They sued Mushroom for misrepresentation or whatever. Um, meanwhile, Portrait Records, which is a subsidiary of Epic, 
sweeps in and says, we'll yep. sign you. So they immediately start working on what's going to be their third album, Little Queen. And meanwhile, um, the law, the lawsuit goes into court. The court says, yes, you may step away from Mushroom, but you have to finish this second album, which you were under contract to do. So they went into the studio. I think it was five days. They finished recording uh, magazine with an like I think there was an armed guard. There was in a the guard at the door to make sure that they didn't tamper with the masters or anything. Yep, to erase them basically. Yep. Yeah. So basically, their second album got finished after their third album. Their third album came out. Barracuda was a huge hit, and then magazine was re-released the following year as yep. their third album but it's really their second album it's wacko yeah it's so i think they had actually in 77 i think they had three albums in the charts that year mm -hmm. because it was another album that was anyway. yeah because uh, um, um dreamboat annie was still yeah still that was it i believe right yeah yeah so that so hard and then the other um person i want to mention was linda ronsat with her Ooh. eighth album simple dreams because mm. oh my god blue by you it's so easy poor poor mm -hmm. pitiful me tumbling dice tumbling dice uh i think spent it's i i read that it's spent five weeks at number one it was one it was like one of our most successful you know what this actually knocked uh rumors out of the number one spot um <laughs> after it had been after rumors had been on the charts for 29 weeks at number one <sighs> So, wow. and she also knocked Elvis Presley out of the uh, number one spot on the country charts after fifth, after 15 mm. weeks. Mm. So it became, uh, I think she, she became the first female artist to have two singles in the top five at the same time with so blue Bayou, which was on like three different charts and it's so easy, which wow. was, was on, yeah. yeah, that's a great, it was record. a huge album. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, I, I, this is blasphemy and I fully admit that I am, 100% blasphemous and unrepentant <laughs> about it. But I think that her Warren Zevon covers are better than Warren Zevon's originals. Oh, that's not bad. I know, that's, that's okay. No, I think, if her, all the when, any song that she does is probably better than, I know. She's just yeah. amazing. She, yeah. she is in, an interpreter. That's what she does. Exactly. That's exactly yeah. right. And speaking of women, you know, we had a Runaways album that year. Yes. Which is, is freaking amazing. But uh, also, um, kind of circling back to this week as well, because uh, we lost Loretta Lynn. But Loretta Lynn did an amazing record called I Remember Patsy, which outside, oh, yeah. of, Coal, outside of Coal Miner's Daughter was the, was the only other, was like, was like, I'd heard Coal Miner's Daughter, mm. right? But it was like, oh, okay, this is, this is my first memory of Loretta Lynn hearing this record that my brother played all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it's a love letter to Patsy Cline. And it's it sticks out a little bit in the year because of all the records that came out. But it's wonderful. Her voice is amazing. You can feel the uh, sincerity of what she thought of Patsy Cline. Um, and it's, it's, it holds up well, so I want to mention that. And Grace Jones' Portfolio, which in 1977 was weird as fuck. Yeah. That cover of <laughs> La Vie and Rose is still just, what, what is this? Right? <laughs> but... That record now is amazing. Yeah. Um, in yeah. a perfect world, her and, and Kate Bush tour together. But um, <laughs> um, but I, I will say that, you know, I don't think, um, you know, that record coming out in 77, it kind of got overshadowed by a lot of other records. And looking back at it now from a production standpoint and also uh, a music as a visual art standpoint, it's important. But I just also think that she still doesn't get 
the recognition that she's due as an artist. I mean, that, that she that never really is, has. No, you're that right. Record is just really dense. And that cover Levian Rose is, uh, I listened to it the other day and I'm like, this is still pretty friggin' weird, but I love it. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'm going to jump into some of my rock favorites because rock. I got to, man. My introduction to Alice Cooper came in 1977 with uh, the release of his live album, The Alice Cooper Show. And that was the first, I mean, I'd heard like a couple of things on the radio or whatever, but that's the first time that I ever really heard Alice Cooper. You know, I'd, first time I'd ever heard Under My Wheels, uh, the first time I'd ever heard Sick Things and uh, Devil's Food and Black Widow and all these. And I don't think I'd even heard uh, Billion Dollar Babies at that point. So I was just blown away and um, I've been a Alice fan for a long, long time. And it all started right then. And that was when I was in like 10th grade. I think it was, I was still kind of young and still really kind of getting into the, the heavier rock scene. Um, with that uh, kiss <laughs> love gun came out in June. And uh, that was, I think that was my 13th, no 15th birthday. And um, I got the, I got the album for my birthday and I, I didn't like Kiss. I didn't have any interest in Kiss. I didn't want a Kiss record, but somebody got it for me for some reason for my birthday present. And so I started listening to it a little bit. I didn't pay a lot of attention to it at first, um, but I, I started to listen to it and I started to get into it and I started to really be caught by some of the songs. And that's where I started teaching myself how to play drums. Oh my God. Listening to Love Gun. Wow. And just banging on the bed or on like a stack of like books. And I had arranged the books. So where this one has a higher pitch and this one has a medium pitch, you know, so I could do like some of the drum fills and stuff like that. I love and then, it. and then I got a drum set at some point uh, the following year, I think. And that's where it all began for wow. me. Um, let's see. Peter Frampton released I'm in you, which was his <sighs> follow up to. So Peter Frampton had been, in a couple of bands um, and then went solo and had ha pretty much zero success as a solo artist and then released the previous year, Frampton Comes Alive. And it's the biggest thing on the planet. So in 77, he goes back into the studio to record a new studio album. And he's like, well, now I've got this, this monumental achievement that I have to like, you know, I'm going to be measured against, and I've never had a successful solo album. Ugh, and so he comes so out with, hard. yes. And he comes out with I'm in you, which um, was a weird album. It was very, it was, all, it was kind of mellow, which you wouldn't expect coming off of a big high energy live album like that. But the first single, the title track, I'm in you, a ballad became his biggest charting single, even higher than the singles from um, Frampton Comes Alive. So mm. it, it worked out for him. And then the other one that I want to mention is News of the World by Queen. Yes, yes baby. We will so, rock you. <laughs> exactly. You've got We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions, which were the two. I mean, you could not escape those, those songs. They no. were everywhere. But the album has also got some... You know, like you always hear the Freddie and the Brian songs because those are the ones that usually get released as singles. But the other guys have some great songs on that album, too. The, the song Sheer Heart Attack 
which, you know, two albums earlier, they had an album called Sheer Heart Attack, and the song never showed up until now, which was written by Roger Taylor, which is a phenomenal song, and Spread Your Wings by John Deacon. Just mm-hmm. killer, killer, killer songs. Great album. Yeah, that's a gr- that's great. That was that's a yeah. good pick. Yeah. They were inescapable around yeah. that time. You know, every single that they released on this album and the ones before it and the one right after it, you just they were behemoths. Just, just think of like, a, there was so many huge albums that year. Just like yep. there was Bad Out of Hell by Meatloaf. I mean, yeah. Phenomenally yeah. huge. Um, yeah. Uh, Foreigner's debut, which was, I think that's, wasn't that Wait, with what? like, feels oh like, yeah. Feels totally like the first time. That. Yeah. It was huge. <laughs> the, the Cheap Trick debut. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And Come Saturday on. Night Fever and, and Slow Hand yeah. by Captain. Like there were just so many huge albums that also. Yeah. Pink Floyd Animals. Yep. And uh, ACDC had a record out that year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, this is really starting to become the, the the time where soundtracks are the thing that's generating yeah. the the, the, right, you like know, the singles Night on radio Fever, because yeah. you've got uh, Saturday Night Fever. And this is also yeah. the year that the Star Wars soundtrack comes out. Mm. <laughs> and that is massive. Because, oh, really? That came out in 77? Yeah. Yeah. She got the Miko, the Miko spinoff of that, which was ridiculous, but Mm. huge. (laughs) I know that it's still a bad taboo thing to talk about how amazing Saturday Night Fever is. But no, it's awesome. It's friggin' as as a piece of pop music, right? Yeah. Um, It's also the first album. It was usually influenced for club culture because um, it was the first record where DJs got a promo copy with two copies of the record so they could mix it. So you had two mm. copies of side one and two copies of side two, um, which was great. I bought one at Bleaker Bob's in 1994. <laughs> I'm so excited. Um, but that record, everything on that is a banger, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And um, yeah. it also encapul- it encapsulates a time in the same way that the Bowie Berlin records do that year. This cap- captures a moment in time, right? Because yeah. um, 77, you know, it's you've got the Son of Sam, you've got, like, inflation, you've got the energy crisis, you've got a ton of civil wars going on in third world countries. You know, you lose you lose Bowen Elvis and uh, Ben Blackout Crosby in one year, right? Blackout, too. The Blackout, too. Yeah, so there's mm. a lot. And Saturday Night Fever kind of is the sound of, like, yeah. all of this stuff with a hint of optimism to it, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's grimy and it's gritty, but it's also got like um, a really good sense of cheer and optimism to it mm-hmm. that I think is really great. Mm-hmm. And um, you're starting to see music films come out because you get Abba the Movie and Saturday Night Fever. And then after this, you start seeing other things like Xanadu and then other, these other like music, you know, the, we should never talk about this again. The uh, remake of uh, Sergeant Pepper's um, <laughs> film. Um, you, you, a lot of that started in 77, right? Yeah. So, and you also have Steely Dan Asha, too. Oh my God, Asia. Oh, yeah. How, how yeah, I was just going to, I actually have that on my list and I didn't even, yep. but that was just huge and amazing. And, and Chic, their self titled record, which is friggin' amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Also, James Taylor with JT, which was huge with like yes. Handyman and whenever I see your smiling uh-huh. face like that, like, again, that's like a camp kind of memory for me. But 
meaning my sleepaway camp, not a campy kind of memory. (laughs) (laughs) But another like huge kind of like with the Linda Ronstadt vibe, you know, that Mm -hmm. whole. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very wild year. Yeah, it really was. There's so much going on. There's so much new stuff happening when all this old stuff is dying away. And to sort of emphasize that, I found a little list of some of the acts that sign record contracts in 77. So they are on the horizon. Like these are the bands that starting in 78, this is where the music uh, industry is moving. Mm-hmm. So the bands, some of the, the the big bands that signed record contracts in 77 are The Cars, mm-hmm. Devo, Midnight Oil, The Police, and Van Halen. So you talk about, you know, big changes on the way. Yeah. This is, this is incredible. All right. So any last, oh, wait, 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 wait. How did we not think Uh-oh. to mention the biggest song of 1977. Everyone sing along. You light up my life. You give me hope. Holy smokes. You carry on. <laughs> yeah, I should let you sing because you're voice is much prettier. <laughs> we were we were really low registered too on yeah. that one. <laughs> well that's true. I, I'm not gonna try and sing it up in her register. <laughs> but that fucking song yeah. holy shit was like I, I don't even remember the number, but it was like half the year it was in the number one spot on the singles chart. It would not go away. Yeah, you're you know what that's a good point. Like there Ellen Rob you were saying there were so many singles out that like yeah. that were just like that didn't go away. Yeah, that was yeah. one of them. Yeah, that was huge. So yeah, other than you light up my life, like <laughs> Debbie Boone. Any last thoughts about seventy-seven? I'm all seventy-seven out. I think I know, right? Yeah, it's it's an know, exhausting year. <laughs> it is considering everything that went on, you know, culturally, politically, and socially in the country yeah. at that time. The fact that we remember all of the music from it, yeah. and the fact that it is just so all-encompassing. I mean, we didn't even get to like the Cajun. There were yes, there were Cajun records that were important that year, right? We didn't even get to like what happened with classical and opera. They're doing a lot more experimental stuff with that. It's also weird in that Maria Callas and Mark Boland died on the same day. Um, <laughs> you know, um, see see whose ego is bigger. You know, it's just such a year of contrasts and cross cross influencing. Because she puts out a record, and then down the road, them and David Bowie work together, right? Mm-hmm. Al Green puts out a record, then later down the road, you've got Al Green and, and Marvin Gaye and Bill Withers starting to sort of like want to create this identity with soul music, you know? And then you've got just so much going on. And there's, I know you talked about Exodus, but there are like at least five reggae records I'm going to remember oh, the yeah, minute yeah. we get off. The minute we get off this album, I, we cannot cover. I mean, it is arguably like the most dense year of music yeah. of the yeah. 20th century. And it's amazing to me how many things came out in 77 that are still in heavy rotation in yeah. my personal play. Yes. I mean, you know, you've got um, Love Gun, of course, and News of the World and Little Queen and Rumors and Farewell to Kings and Going for the One and Grand Illusion. I listen to all that yeah. stuff mm-hmm. like all the damn time. 
Mm -hmm. So 77 was a hugely important year for me personally. The two Bowie albums, you know, I mean, it's just like, like my, I could just put together a playlist and just never leave 1977. Uh, you're right. My, this piece of paper in front of me could just be fine with all my, you know, because yeah. it's got like, there's just such a variety too. You'll never get bored. Yeah. There's so many. Yeah, exactly. No matter what you're in the mood for, right. you're going to find something from 77 that yeah. fits the bill. And the thing about 77, at least for, for my musical journey, is because I was nine, right? Mm -hmm. um, I heard so many records that are now, as a, as a kid, and I didn't sort of know any of the backs, but they, they're so incredibly prolific in my life now. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the Bowie records, the Iggy, the Jam, the Damned, all that stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, that it's it's like... In a way, it informed my musical education, but I did not even know it at the time. Just the osmosis that I had of hearing, you know, my brother and my sisters playing the, some of the stuff. Yeah. Um, it sort of seeped into my musical experiences as a human being. So I could only imagine what it does to people that were older at that time. Um, what he's saying is the people who were around us? in I was and no, listening no, no. to records. No, I want, I want to be able. I'm one of these weird people that want. If I could pick a time to go back in time, I want to go back to 1977 New York and just hang out for. Like yeah, a that would be great. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, I wish I was in like my adolescence at this time to hear all of this and appreciate it in real time. Yeah, right. Which is one of the one of the. It's one of the sad things about 77 me is that I can't appreciate it in real time. But likewise, it's also one of the beautiful things about it is that it's like how many musical gifts have been passed down to people that love music from 1977, no matter how old you are, yeah. right? It's amazing. There are yeah. still yeah. kids today, probably not ones that went to Woodstock 99, but there are kids today <laughs> that listen to all these records now and they're informing what they do. And right. that's amazing. Right. So listeners, your job is to email us or comment wherever you're finding the episode and let us know what your favorite 1977 release is. We're really wanting to know what it is that, that you're listening to that's from that year. So we'll be back next week with another show. I don't know what the topic will be, but we're going to be there. So Stephanie, in the meantime, where can people find more about you? You can find me on Bandcamp. You can find me at my website, therearebirds.com. You can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music, and you can find me on Instagram at there underscore r underscore birds, and of course, all the streaming platforms. Absolutely. Rob. So you can find me on uh, the Weekend Justice podcast for needcoffee.com, and also through this uh, 28-year-old hobby of mine called Juxtaposition on KDHX. <laughs> Yay. Uh, in St. Louis, um, this year marks my 35th year playing records on the radio, which is Jeez. weird. And awesome. 28 of them at KDHX. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. That's crazy. Um, so it's on Wednesdays from seven to nine and, uh, you can listen to it online streaming at KDHX.org. Uh, there is nothing more exciting in the streaming digital age than hearing a record on the radio still just saying, <laughs> um, and that's streaming seven to nine central. Wednesday nights, archive for two weeks. Listen to it if you are uh, bored. <laughs> if you're or if bored. you want to hear great music, how about that? Because <laughs> it is I such a good I was show. Say. <laughs> we should say where where we can find 
um, Anthony, right? Yeah. Well, he, Anthony has a, a podcast all about Doctor Who. They are watching the entirety of Doctor Who from the very beginning up to they have just gotten into Tom Baker's first season, which, you know, has been quite a long road for them. And it's called Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. And you can find that on Spotify and Apple and um, Google Podcasts and all those other places that I never can remember. I need to put a list. <laughs> I just need to have a list that I can read from. Anthony's not here. You can't cheat from his, exactly. his list. Exactly. <laughs> so, Anthony, if I undersold your podcast, I apologize. <laughs> but also, I have a small publishing company called Cosmic Press, and you can find it at Cosmic Press, K-O-Z-M-I-C Press.com. And I've got a Star Trek podcast called Earth Station Trek, and I'm just about to launch a Doctor Who podcast of my very own called Doctor Who A to Z. It is going to be probably a weekly show. Um, the first episode should be out by the time this episode that you're listening to now comes out. So awesome. look for it. Yay! Look for it on Facebook right now. Facebook is the only place that has a presence, but that's going to change in the next few days. Um, so we will be back next week. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for checking out this show. I hope you'll um, drop us a note and let us know what your favorite album of 1977 is. And until next week, be good. Have a great week. Listen to some great music and keep rocking on. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.